So I didn't need glasses until after my first year at college. Now, most, most of you don't see me wearing glasses. I normally wear contacts now. But, but up until my first year in college, I had 20-20 eyesight, maybe better than 20-20 eyesight. But by the end of freshman year, I found myself no longer recognizing people when they called out to me from the other side of the quad. I, I found myself needing to sit closer to the blackboard at the front of class. I, I found myself needing to squint to bring the fine print of all that reading into focus. In other words, in order to see clearly, I had to move closer to what I wanted to see. That is, until I went to see the eye doctor and they gave me glasses. Today, as Dan pointed out at the top, is Reformation Day. The 504th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, if somebody came up and nailed something to the front door of our church, we would probably take that as an act of vandalism. But in Luther's case, there was no vandalism involved. Uh, That door was the community bulletin board. It's where everybody nailed stuff to, 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 to put up notices and he was inviting the, the, the religious leaders of his day to a debate, to a conversation. Luther was convinced that the church's vision of Jesus wasn't as clear as they thought it was. He, he wasn't aiming to start a new church. He certainly was not aiming to start something that we now know as Protestantism, but he did think that the church needed to move closer, to study the scriptures more carefully in order to see Jesus more clearly. Now, this fall, we have been looking at the final days of Jesus' life as presented in Luke's gospel. This morning, we finally come to the climax of the story, the crucifixion. Of Jesus Christ. As we're going to see, all of Jesus' teaching comes to an end. We barely hear from him. All of the conflict that we've seen now comes to a head as Jesus is handed over to the Romans and executed. And the question that we are confronted with is quite straightforward Who do we see? Who do we see? If you, if you look at the front of your bulletin, Luke tells us who the Romans wanted us to see. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. That's who the Romans wanted everybody to see. They were making a political point. There is no king but Caesar. But but the question that I want to ask this morning is who do you see? Who do you see at the execution of? the king of the Jews. I want to invite you this morning to move closer to the story with me in order to see Jesus more clearly. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 23. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's found on page 937. Luke 23, we're going to consider the entire chapter this this morning. We're going to be moving through it. You'll, You'll be helped if you 
leave your Bibles open because I'm going to be referring to it again and again, even as I read different sections of it. Luke chapter 23, found on page 937 in those pew Bibles. Now, I mentioned two weeks ago when we looked at Luke 22, that the account of Jesus' death actually comes in two parts. Uh, two weeks ago, we considered the Jewish context and the Jewish trial. Now we come in Luke 23 to the Roman trial and the Roman execution. The chapter falls neatly into those two sections, the trial and the execution. We're going to look at it in that order. But I want you to remember that in each section, Luke is asking us, who do you see? Well, let's consider first the trial. Look with me at Luke 23, verse 1. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. Pilate then told the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he started even to hear. Now, when Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean and finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see some miracles performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither is Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped, and then release him. Then they all cried out together, Take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. All right, here's the question that we're confronted with at the trial. Do you see the innocent substitute at the trial of the king of the Jews. Do you see the innocent substitute? You see, having condemned Jesus at their own trial, the Sanhedrin is actually powerless to do anything about it. They have, they have no legal authority to impose any kind of penalty that they would want to 
imposed. So they haul him over before the Roman consul Pilate because Pilate had the real authority. It was his authority that that had teeth to it. And they level their charges against Jesus. Now, the leaders, they know their audience. They know that Pilate could care less about their religious disputes. So they frame the whole thing as a political matter, as sedition. This man opposes taxes. He claims to be a rival king to Caesar. You see that there in verse 2. Well, now that's a pretty serious charge. So, so Pilate's got to examine that. He's got to take a look at that. And, and, and when Pilate examines him, what does he find? He says himself, he finds no grounds for charging him. But the leaders are insistent and annoying. Do, 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 I hope you heard that throughout the, the leaders are pests. They are annoying to this Roman proconsul who has other things he would like to deal with. And so, seizing the chance to rid himself of these pesky leaders and their annoying charges, he sends Jesus over to Herod. Galilee was Herod's jurisdiction, after all, and this man was from Galilee. You see that there in verses 6 and 7. Well, Herod is delighted. Man, he has been waiting for a chance to see Jesus. He's really hoping that maybe he'll get to see some of Jesus' best party tricks. He's heard about these miracles. He wants to see a few. Here's his chance. But Jesus doesn't cooperate. He won't answer any of his questions. And honestly, very much like a a child who is pouting because he didn't get what he wanted. Herod and his men, kind of peevishly disappointed, begin to mock Jesus. They they treat him with contempt, and they send him back to Pilate. And it's that point in verses 14 to 16 that Pilate delivers his conclusion. Jesus is innocent. He says it again, I find no basis to charge him. Oh, and by the way, it wasn't just me. Herod didn't find a basis to charge him. That's why he sent him back to me. So to humor you, I'll flog him for your trouble, and then I'm releasing him. It's not what the leaders want, though. They want Barabbas, a man that that we're told twice in this section is actually guilty of rebellion, actually guilty of murder. They want the guilty person released instead. Pilate tries a second time, but he's shouted down there in verse 20 and 21. He tries a third time in verse 22, declaring Jesus' innocence. But the crowd wears him down. And their shouts of crucify, we're told, win the day. Pilate releases the guilty man. We're told one more time there in verse 25, just so we didn't miss it. Pilate releases the guilty man and in his place hands over the innocent man to their will to be executed as a guilty criminal, even though he's not. Friends, here's the meaning of the crucifixion. The meaning of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His death It's not a tragedy. His death was not an accident. Jesus' crucifixion on the cross was an intentional act 
under legitimate authority in which the innocent is knowingly being put in the place of the guilty and suffering the punishment that the guilty deserved. Luke has gone out of his way to make clear. Pilate says it three times. He's gone out of his way to make clear that not only was Jesus innocent of all charges, but everyone involved knew it. They knew he was innocent. It was an act of extraordinary official injustice. But Rome's was not the only authority being exercised that day. Everything in Scripture has been preparing us for this moment. When, when the innocent substitute would be willingly offered as a sacrifice in the place of the guilty. I mean, let me just real quickly, and I won't even be able to do all of it, but let's just review a few things about our Old Testament history that we know. Go back to, to the ram who was caught in the thicket in Genesis 22, offered as a substitute in Isaac's place. Think back to, to Exodus 12 and, and the Passover lamb who is slaughtered so that those inside the house are not. Or think about all of the animals sacrificed in the temple, detailed for us in Leviticus, sacrifices on behalf of the guilty. Now, theologians have a name for this. It's described so many times in the Bible, beginning, I think we could probably go all the way back to Genesis 3. I started in Genesis 22. But it just goes all the way through the Old Testament and comes to its climax here in the New Testament. And, and, the, and the way theologians describe this, what they call this, is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal. Because punishment is actually being inflicted for guilt. But not on the guilty. It's on the substitute. And as a result of the punishment being put on the, the substitute instead of the guilty, what happens? Atonement happens. Uh, f- forgiveness that, that reconciles two parties that are estranged, one guilty and the other just. Those parties are God on the one hand. And then all those that the sacrifice represents on the other hand. As a result of the substitutionary sacrifice in which punishment is inflicted, those who are represented by the sacrifice are reconciled to the just God who has inflicted the punishment, not on the guilty, but on the innocent substitute. Friends, this is why God became man in the first place. It's it's why Jesus had to come. Of of course, says the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It would have to be a person who took our place. It It would have to be a person who suffered our punishment for us. And punishment is what we deserve. 
You understand that, right? I mean, God made it very clear at the very beginning to Adam and Eve, if you obey me, and he didn't have many commands, it was just like one, don't eat from that tree. If you obey me, you're going to live. If you disobey me, then death will be the punishment. And, and the rest of the Old Testament kind of works out and spells out what that means. But, but that's the reality of all of us. We deserve punishment. Not because of all, all, the, all the things that maybe you're not even sure you should be held accountable for. I, I, let's, just, let's just talk about the things that you know that you have done wrong. That you agree with me. That you'd agree with yourself. That you have done wrong. For, for that, God says, you are guilty. And the punishment is death. What's going what's to take that away? What, 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 could you, what could you offer as a substitute? A bull that knows no better? A, a, a lamb that doesn't even have a conscience? No, it has to be a person that takes our place. An innocent human being, a, a good human being. But immediately our minds recoil, don't they? I mean, the, the enormity of that thought is devastating. You, preacher, Christian preacher, you're, you're standing up here, you're, you're talking to me about human sacrifice? Human sacrifice is abhorrent. Human sacrifice is barbaric. You're telling me that human sacrifice is at the heart of the Christian religion? Of course it's grotesque. And and part of the reason I think that we rightly understand human sacrifice to be grotesque is because we get the utter ineffectiveness of it. Right? I mean, maybe, maybe you could see your way there if it would actually accomplish something. But, but what good is the sacrifice of one sinful human being going to be for another sinful human being? They both deserve to die. And so you have the double injustice. One, taking a life that you shouldn't have taken. And then second, taking it to no good effect. Then we get to the cross. And we see that that's exactly what is being said. A human life is being substituted for other human lives. Oh, but how much more staggering then is the thought that it is an innocent human life. The injustice of it all just seems to pile up. An innocent person dying for the guilty. Friends, the enormity of the injustice of the cross is dwarfed only by the immensity of the love that would undertake such a substitution. And make no mistake, the motivation of God in sending his son, the motivation of Jesus in accepting the assignment and being sent is love. Throughout the Old Testament, the the guilty are constantly bringing their own animal substitute. 
It's got to cost them something. They, they've got to provide the substitute. But friends, what substitute can we finally provide? We have none. I have nothing to bring to offer in place of myself. And so God, God the Son, provided the perfect substitute in the person of himself. As the Apostle Paul would later write, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who is it that Christ, the King and substitute, represents? Friends, it's all those who identify with him through repentance and faith. For those, whoever you are, whatever you've done, Christ makes atonement. The the message of Christianity, yes, is that an extraordinary injustice to all appearances took place. But that injustice, a man dying who had no reason to die, that injustice was, was done out of love for you. If you will identify with him, if you will put your faith in him and say, yeah, I, I know my conscience is guilty. Yeah, I, I, I know that, I, that I've spent my life kind of rejecting God. I've, I've spent my life being my own king. I've spent my life going my own way. And for all of that, I deserve God's judicial penalty of death. And I have no hope except to identify with Jesus and trust that God will accept his death in my place. We're not asking you to like work harder, to commend yourself to God. Christianity isn't asking you to become more religious, uh, to, to go through more rituals and, and duties. No, we're asking something in, in one sense, much harder, but in one sense, much easier. We're asking you to turn away from trusting in yourself, recognizing that you've got nothing that you can bring to make yourself right with God and instead trust in what God has done for you. This is the heart of the good news that, that Martin Luther rediscovered Justification, being declared right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God's gift received by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. There are a lot of people here, if you're not a believer, there are a lot of people here that would love to talk to you more about that. What would it mean to trust in this good news that that was recovered at the Reformation that Luke so carefully and clearly explains in Luke 23. You can find me down front afterwards. Talk with the person that you came, came with. Uh, c- contact us during the week. We, we, we would love to explore this more with you. But friend, don't misunderstand. Yes, this, 
this grotesque and, and horrible thing happened at the very center of Christianity. And yet, it was done by God, to God, in love for you. Now, Christian, understand that if Jesus is your substitute and you have trusted in him already, you don't need to add anything to what he's done. I mean, could there be anything more offensive than thinking that, well, I, I know Jesus died for me, but I can't really like, be close to God until I like, clean up my life a little bit better. I had a bad week. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, to like, spend any time in prayer with the Lord. I'm going to kind of keep my distance until I put at least, I don't know, five or seven days of good behavior b- between you know, like, that sin that I'm so ashamed of and, and now. And then, I, then I'll be able to like, be with God again. How offensive. Every time you do that, you're basically saying, yeah, Jesus is my substitute, sort of. But not quite enough. I've got to add to it. Christian, what would it look like for you to live today in the freedom of the gospel? The freedom that understands that Christ was the perfect substitute. He lacked nothing and has done all that you need to live in a a relationship that is fully reconciled and utterly free. Luke wants us to see the innocent substitute here. Do you see your substitute? Now, that's not all Luke wants us to see. So we need to move from the trial to, second, the execution. So let's pick it up in verse 26. And I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others. Criminals were also led away to be executed with him. And when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly. 
because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan in action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Something strange happens here at the second half of Luke 23. The the cross, the crucifixion of Christ is the climax of Luke's gospel. But when we finally get there, he barely looks at it. it. It's as if something too holy, too awful in every sense of the word is happening to gaze directly at it for too long. He's already, as we've seen in the first half of the chapter, explained the meaning of the crucifixion. And for Luke, that is far more important than the graphic details. Mel Gibson got it wrong. The the, the truth of the crucifixion is not seen in the, the graphic display of what happened. Instead, as I'm sure you've noticed, as I read... Luke focuses on on all the people watching the grizzly scene. He's watching the watchers. That, that, That word watch or saw or looked and gazed gets repeated over and over again through this chapter. So he's watching the crowd that is gathered around the cross, but... But there's a pattern. It's not a random crowd. At the very center of this section, in verses 44 to 46, the focus for a brief moment is solely on Jesus. But then surrounding on both sides are are really kind of a series of pairs. And I've tried to outline them here. You can look on the screen. Uh, You can also look in the the handout because that screen isn't going to stay up there the whole time. There's there's this series of pairs surrounding the cross at the center, each mirroring the other in what are almost like concentric circles around the cross. I've I've kind of laid it out by character, and and then you can see below that by theme. What do those characters represent? If you're curious, the, the technical word for this is chiasm. 
but that and, you know, 350 will get you a cup of coffee. So it doesn't matter if you understand the word or know the word. The point is that the point is Jesus. He's at the center. And yet what Luke is exploring, all the different groups of people responding to what's at the center. And it's kind of clear what Luke is doing. He's holding up a mirror to us and he's asking us, do you see yourself at the execution of the king of the Jews? Do you see yourself there? Let's look through these these pairs. The, The first and outermost pair is Simon of Cyrene in verse 26 and Joseph of Arimathea in verses 50 to 53. Now, the first is almost like a like a parable, almost like a a, a riddle for us. We know nothing about him, but what he does in verse 26. The the second, Joseph, is clearly an example. Both are offered to us as pictures, like living parables of what it looks like to follow a crucified Messiah. It, It looks like Simon of Cyrene taking up your own cross and following after Jesus. It looks like Joseph of Arimathea displaying an allegiance that not only goes against the crowd, but against your own tribe. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but didn't agree with their decision and at great risk to his own reputation, treated Jesus' dead body with grace and devotion. Friends, what does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to follow a crucified Messiah? It looks like dying to yourself. It looks like a costly discipleship. Now, this pair, interestingly, they're not at the scene of the crucifixion itself. One comes before the other follows after the cross. I think in some ways they're showing us what it means to come to Christ initially And then to follow him afterward. So I simply ask you, Christian, do these pictures describe you? Are are you following Christ in such a way that it is clear that you have not only counted the cost, but you're paying it? Or does every time the bill comes due, you find yourself ducking out early? And leaving the cost with someone else. There is no following Jesus in this world. If we are not willing to follow him on the same path that he trod. That there is no discipleship that will cost you nothing. That there is no faith in Christ that will not mean at some point or another. Paying the price of going against maybe your own tribe your own people being misunderstood being rejected there is no following Christ in this world that does not involve bearing our own cross dying to ourselves and following him faithfully Christian when I talk about it in those terms 
Are, are you able to, to quickly and immediately say, yeah, you're right, because that's what I experienced last week, or that's what I face in, in my job, and, and I know what that feels like? Or do you find yourself thinking, I don't really quite know what the preacher is talking about? I've never really had to pay a price to follow Jesus. Christian, if the bill is never coming due, and if you're never paying it, how do you know you're following? The second pair are two different groups of women. And both of them, both groups, misunderstand what's happening. The first group, the daughters of Jerusalem, are weeping over Jesus on the way to the cross. You see that in verses 27 to 31. They are mourning him. I'm sure that they, they assume that what's happening is a tragedy. But Jesus rebukes them. It's not his impending death they should mourn, but their own. He, he refers there, he makes allusion to two different prophets. He refers to the prophet Hosea and the prophet Ezekiel. And basically, without going into all the detail, Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm the true Israel. I, I'm the green wood. I am the faithful vine. And in rejecting him, Israel is showing itself to be the dry, dead wood, the, the unfaithful vine. And he essentially is saying to them, look, if Rome has condemned me, the faithful vine, the the, the greenwood, how much more will it condemn Jerusalem and to a fate so bad that the childless will be considered blessed? They misunderstood. They thought his death was about him. They failed to recognize that actually it was about them. Now, on the other side of the crucifixion, we've got another group of women, these women who followed him from Galilee, along with those who knew them, clearly a reference to the disciples there in verse 49. And they, too, misunderstand what is happening. And so they stand at a distance in fear. They they thought he's the one. This is it. It's going to be great. And there he is on the cross. And they just are assuming it's all over. And they're coming for us next. And so misunderstanding what's happening, they stand at a distance. It's an allusion to Psalm 38, verse 11. My loved ones and friends stand back from my affliction. And my relatives stand at a distance. So we've got these two different groups of women, both of them misunderstanding what's going on. But unlike the daughters of Jerusalem, the story is not over for this second group of women. As the final verses in chapter 23 make clear, they may lack faith. They may lack understanding. But they do not lack love. And as a result, these will be the first to witness the resurrection. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and you've got questions. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you're not sure you understand the cross. You're not, you're not sure under, you understand what Christianity is all about. I, I want you to know that misunderstanding and questions about the cross of Christ are understandable. They're, 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 they're reasonable. 
But I also want you to know that they are not sustainable. You can't stay in your misunderstanding and your questions forever. Misunderstanding and questions will resolve into either unbelief and judgment or faith and salvation. Agnosticism is not a place you can stay long term. It's interesting to me that the difference between these two groups is their response. Only one group followed to see where he was buried. That same group showed up Sunday morning. The others, they heard his rebuke and they went home. As Ambrose, Bishop of Milan in the fourth century, observed about the women who stood at a distance, he says, the women are the last to leave the tomb and the first to return to it. Although stability is lacking, diligence is not. They weren't expecting a resurrection Sunday morning. But their persistence, their diligence was rewarded. And so I would just say to any of you out there who, who find yourself relating to the women, like misunderstanding, you got questions. What I want to say to you is keep asking your questions. But then be open to the answers that Jesus gives. Now, the third group is much closer to the cross. It's the crowd. They're leaders, the soldiers. You see there in verses 32 to 38, the whole world, Jews, the the leaders, the crowd, Gentiles, the soldiers, they are united in their rejection of Jesus. Now, there's so many allusions to prophecy fulfilled here that I cannot even begin to point them all out. Luke is clearly aware of them. It's why he uses some of the language that he uses. But I don't think it's his main focus. His focus is on the response of the crowds. They're, they're mocking, they're insulting, they're, they're scoffing. These are people who are standing right there at the cross who see nothing but the just deserts of a fool who thought he was somebody, but turned out to be nobody because he could not save himself. Did you notice how often that phrase was repeated? Save yourself, save yourself, prove it, save yourself. When it's all over, when we get to the other side of the cross, the crowd simply goes home, verse 48, striking their chests. Now, you know, when we do that, you see it like in, I don't know, like boxing match or a mixed martial arts match. You know, it's a sign of of triumph, like, you know, that's not what's going on here. That's not what that means in in the context. That striking of the chest is not... A signal of triumph. It's a signal of responsibility. You see in David at the death of Absalom. You you, you see it at the, the tax collector who shows up at the temple striking his chest. Only here. There's nothing that suggests contrition. Much less repentance. They're moved by what they saw, but what they saw as far as they are concerned was a spectacle And they remain in their unbelief. 
Friends, there is a strange irony to unbelief. They couldn't believe in a savior who couldn't save himself. They say it over and over and over again. Why? Because they want a strong God. They want a victorious God. They they want a God, the kind of God that would reflect well on them. A God made in their own best image of themselves. But Luke has been making the point from the beginning. That's not the God who could save them. Because the only God who could save them was the God who represented them. The truth is none of us can save ourselves. The only way we can be saved is through a Savior who refuses to save himself. A a Savior who takes on himself not our best selves, but our worst selves. If you find yourself this morning settled in your unbelief, could it be that you've got it wrong? Could it be that you're sitting there thinking that unbelief is the grown-up thing to do? Unbelief is the courageous thing to do. Unbelief is, is the thing that, that a real adult would do because he understands there, there really isn't anything else out there. And even though we want something else to be out there, there really isn't. And so I'm going to be courageous and I'm going to be adult and I'm going to face what all of the weak religious people won't face and I'm just going to stand in my unbelief. What a heroic self-image. But could it be that your unbelief in God is actually self-deception about yourself? How would you know? Maybe by first considering that your heroic self-image your grown-up and mature unbelief is not everything that you think it is. That brings us to the final pair. They are closest to the cross, and both of them quite unexpectedly confess the truth about Jesus. First, there's the criminal in verses 39 to 43 There are actually two. You you know the story. One goes along with the crowd heaping insults on Jesus and calling on him to save himself. But the other sees clearly. He confesses that they are getting what they deserve, but that Jesus was innocent. And then he turns to Jesus and he asks King Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom In the same way, verse 47, afterwards, closest to the cross, there's one centurion among all the soldiers that had heaped abuse on Jesus. We're told that he saw what happened and confessed this man really was righteous. Mark's gospel notes that this was the centurion who stood facing Jesus at the foot of the cross. Two completely unexpected 
confessions of faith in Christ. And we learn something about faith here. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith does not mean that there are no more questions. Faith doesn't mean that there's nothing left to be learned. Faith does not claim to know everything. But faith confesses what it knows, even when it crosses itself, as the criminal did. Faith confesses what it sees, even though it knows it doesn't see everything, as the centurion did. Friends, faith brings with it certainty, not because it's arrogant, not because it's obstinate. Faith brings with it certainty because it has the humility to understand that I don't have to know everything in order to know some things truly. And I'm willing to stand on what I can see. And that leads us finally to the very center of this chapter. And the most important question Luke asks through this narrative, do you see Jesus? Do you see him? Look at verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. You know, earlier I didn't really spend any time on it. We heard Jesus pray for the forgiveness of those who drove in the nails. But when Luke finally lets us see Jesus, actually stare at him, it's only here at the very end. Darkness has covered the land in the middle of the day. It's as if nature is showing us what natural eyes cannot see, the, the supernatural spiritual wrath of God being poured out on the sun. When it's all over, the, the curtain in the temple is torn into that curtain that separated sinners from the presence of God. Once again, Luke is showing us what the crucifixion meant, even though he's not actually letting us stare at it. We, we never see his broken body. He doesn't describe it to us. We, we, don't, we don't see his blood poured out, but we see the effect. The way is opened to fellowship with God. What do we see here in verses 44 to 46, especially there in verse 46? We see Jesus, the innocent substitute, the, the promised Messiah, the, the king of the Jews, descended from David. And what is he doing? He is entrusting his spirit to the Father. He, he's not racked with doubt. His agony is over because he knows that his work is completed. He knows at that moment that the condemnation he suffered was not for himself, but for all who would believe in him. He knows that he is about to be received into the very presence.
presence of God in glorious triumph. He knows at that moment the plan of God has been accomplished. And so his suffering need be prolonged no longer. And with that, at that moment, he chooses the moment of his death and breathes his last. The king in control to the very end. Friends, all of the previous sermons in this series leading up to this come together right here. Do you see Jesus, the triumphant king? Do do you see Jesus, the beloved son of the father? Do, Do you see Jesus, the son of man who is going to glory and is going to come back in the same? Do you see Jesus, the rejected Messiah, so that you would not be rejected. If you cannot, then what I want to say to you is move closer to the cross. Move closer to the cross. About 100 years after the Reformation, an an, an English pastor began to annotate the the English Bible for for his flock, for for, for the people. And he writes this about about the criminal. He, He says, true faith has piercing eyes, seeing the glory and kingdom of Christ through the dark despair of the cross. Friends, move closer to the cross. Consider its meaning. Consider its significance. Consider it in light of all of the promises of God. And then do not gape. Do not gawk. Do not stand at a distance watching. Do not see in it merely the spectacle of human depravity. Friends, move closer to the cross and you will see your king. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and consider those things that you know are keeping you from seeing Jesus clearly. It might be a sin or a doubt might be the fear of what others will think of you. Whatever that is, it is clouding your vision. Take a moment and confess it and ask the Lord to give you eyes that truly see. Lord God, we are blind by nature and by choice. We need you to give us eyes that see. We need you to correct our vision. We we need you to help us to see what the cross actually means and what it means for us to trust in Christ, our substitute. And then to live in the confidence of that substitution. And we ask that you would do that today. 
in Christ's name. Amen.